Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our sports medicine lecture series. In this lecture, we will focus on lower extremity pathology frequently encountered when taking care of athletes. We will go over some common muscular strains, contusions, stress fractures, and exertional compartment syndrome. Let's get started. Let's start with a quick anatomical review of the lower extremity. What are the compartments of the thigh? There are three compartments, the anterior, posterior, and adductor. The anterior compartment contains the quadriceps and sartorius and is innervated by the femoral nerve. The posterior compartment contains the hamstring musculature and is innervated by the sciatic nerve. The adductor compartment contains the adductor muscle group and is innervated by the obturator nerve. What muscles make up the adductor muscle group? There's the adductor longus, magnus, and brevis, as well as the gracilis, the obturator externus, and the pectineus. All of these muscles are innervated by the obturator nerve. What is the only muscle innervated by the perineal division of the sciatic nerve in the thigh? The short head of the bicep. So starting proximally and working distally, let's begin today with adductor strains. Adductor strains commonly occur in soccer and hockey players, and the pathologic mechanism of injury is a forceful external rotation on an abducted leg. The adductor longus is the most commonly strained. Patients present with pain localized to the groin and tenderness at the pubic rami. They may have pain with resisted leg adduction. Radiographs are typically normal, however avulsions may show a fleck of bone at the insertion site. MRI may show hemorrhage and edema and is useful for delineating the grade of muscle tear. Now, how are adductor strains treated? Non-operative management includes rest, ice, and protected weight-bearing. Physical therapy should also focus on gentle strengthening of the adductor musculature as well as core strengthening. For displaced avulsion injuries, operative fixation with suture anchors may be necessary. Now let's turn our attention to hamstring injuries. These most commonly occur at the myotendinous junction during sprinting as a result of hip flexion and knee extension. They may also occur as an avulsion from the ischial tuberosity. They occur frequently in water skiers. So what are the hamstring muscles? the semimembranosus, the semitendinosus, and biceps femoris, which has a long and short head. All of these are innervated by the tibial division of the sciatic nerve, again, except for the short head of the biceps. Each hamstring muscle originates on the ischial tuberosity, again, except for the short head of the biceps, which originates on the linea aspera on the posterior femur. Physical exam will show ecchymosis in the posterior thigh. Those with a myotendinous junction rupture have a palpable mass typically in the middle third of the posterior thigh. The normal hamstring to quadriceps strength ratio is approximately 65%. MRI can help to show the degree of muscle tearing. Radiographs may also show an avulsion off the ischial tuberosity. Non-operative treatment includes protected weight bearing for four weeks followed by stretching and strengthening in physical therapy. Patients may return to play once strength is 90% of the contralateral uninjured side. Proximal avulsion injuries may undergo operative fixation. The sciatic nerve is at risk during op the sciatic nerve is at risk during this operation. The avulsed fragment can be reattached, however, to the ischial tuberosity using suture anchors. Let's now move to the anterior aspect of the thigh and discuss quadriceps contusions. A contusion occurs as a direct trauma or blunt trauma to the thigh. This is commonly seen in contact sports. The patients will present with pain and tenderness in the anterior thigh. They may have limited knee flexion and possibly an effusion. Straight leg raises should be performed to rule out an extensor mechanism rupture. 
Patients must be watched closely for the development of a thigh compartment syndrome, including a full neurovascular exam of the femoral nerve, including its sensory branches. So what does the femoral nerve innervate? The sartorius and pectineus are innervated by the anterior division. The rectus femoris, vastus medialis, lateralis, and intermedius are innervated by the posterior division. The terminal sensory branches of the femoral nerve are the saphenous nerve and the infrapatellar branches to the knee. Knowing that innervation pattern helps you to remember things like the anterior approach to the hip or Smith-Peterson approach. Superficially, the Smith-Peterson takes place between the femoral nerve innervated sartorius muscle and the superior gluteal nerve innervated tensor fasciae while the deeper dissection includes the femoral nerve innervated rectus femoris and the superior gluteal nerve innervated gluteus medius. Also, next time you're harvesting a bone patella tendon bone autograph, know that your incision is likely cutting through some of the small infrapatellar saphenous nerve branches that are actually some of the terminal branches of the femoral nerve. All right, back to our femoral nerve innervated quadriceps that just got struck by a baseball causing a quadricep contusion. Radiographs are not necessary for this diagnosis. It may be made purely clinically. However, in a chronic injury, myositis ossificans may be present. Remember that myositis ossificans is merely heterotopic ossification that occurred within muscle. With quadriceps contusions, the rate of myositis ossificans development is between 5 and 9%. On radiographs, myositis ossificans will appear as peripheral bone with a central lucent area. Histologically, the periphery will be comprised of mature bone, lamellar, or woven bone, and the central lesion will be made up of immature osteoblasts. MRI would only be indicated after a quadricep contusion if there was a worry for a quadricep tendon rupture. Patients will typically be treated non-operatively for a quadricep contusion, barring the development of any thigh compartment syndrome. Non-operative treatment includes immobilization in 120 degrees of knee flexion for 24 hours, followed by physical therapy. Remember that point as it has been tested in the past. Immobilization in 120 degrees of knee flexion for 24 hours. They should be aggressively iced during this time frame. The immobilization can be performed either with an ACE wrap around the knee or a hinge knee brace. Losartan, or angiotensin II receptor blockers, which block insulin-like growth factor, help to increase muscle regeneration and decrease fibrosis after high-grade contusions like a quadricep contusion. Let's move a little bit deeper in a different mechanism of injury now, with a rectus femoris strain. Stretching of the rectus femoris muscle may lead to a high-grade muscle strain. This injury is commonly seen in soccer and football players. The mechanism of injury is a forceful, eccentric contraction of the muscle, so imagine kicking a soccer ball. A younger patient that sustains the same mechanism will likely evolve the anterior inferior iliac spine instead of straining the muscle. Remember that the rectus femoris originates on the anterior inferior iliac spine and inserts on the patella as part of the quadriceps tendon. It flexes the hip and extends the knee and crosses both the hip and knee joint. Patients present with pain in the thigh and they may have pain with resisted hip flexion or knee extension. Plain radiographs will typically be normal, but in the skeletally immature patient, look for an avulsion of the anterior inferior iliac spine. Treatment of a rectus femoris strain involves non-operative management with anti-inflammatories, rest, icing, and stretching, and strengthening exercises. It typically takes four to six weeks for the full resolution of symptoms, depending on the degree of strain. All right, let's move distally now to the lower leg. We will begin the lower leg section with exertional compartment syndrome. First, let's go over the compartments of the lower extremity. There's the anterior, lateral, superficial posterior, and deep posterior compartments. 
Within the anterior compartment lies the tibialis anterior, the extensor hallucis longus, the extensor digitorum longus, and the perineus tertius. The neurovascular bundle within the anterior compartment is the deep perineal nerve and anterior tibial vessels. In the lateral compartment, there is the perineus longus and the perineus brevis. There is also the superficial perineal nerve. Remember that the brevis lies anterior at the level of the ankle. Remember, brevis is on the bone. Superficial posterior compartment contains the gastrocnemius, the plantaris, and the soleus. The sural nerve is also a component of the superficial posterior compartment. Within the deep posterior compartment lies the tibialis posterior, the flexor hallucis longus, the flexor digitorum longus, and the popliteus. The neurovascular components of the deep posterior compartment are the tibial nerve and the posterior tibial vessels. All right, back to exertional compartment syndrome. So exertional compartment syndrome is a condition characterized by reversible ischemia into the muscles within the compartment. It is the second most common exercise-induced leg syndrome behind medial tibial stress syndrome, also known as shin splints. This most commonly occurs in males during their 20s that do a significant amount of running. The anterior compartment is the most commonly affected in approximately 70% of cases. Anterior and lateral compartments are affected in combined cases about 10% of the time. The true etiology has not yet been identified. The underlying pathology is, however, that the metabolic waste products cannot be cleared rapidly enough, leading to a buildup of lactic acid and pain. Patients with exertional compartment syndrome typically present with aching or burning in the legs. They may have paresthesia in the distribution of the perineal nerve. Symptoms occur after a period of exercise and are relieved by rest. A typical patient will develop symptoms over a course of 10 minutes of exercise. However, this will slowly resolve with 30 to 40 minutes of rest. Radiographs are useful to rule out a stress fracture. Advanced imaging is generally not necessary for this diagnosis. Diagnosis can be made, however, with compartment pressure checks. This is important for testing and for clinical purposes. For a positive diagnosis at rest, a patient suffering from exertional compartment syndrome will have measurements greater than 15 millimeters of mercury. One minute after exercise, the patient's pressure will increase to greater than 30 millimeters of mercury. 15 minutes after the cessation of exercises, the compartments will still remain above 15 millimeters of mercury. So remember that for a positive diagnosis, it never drops below 15 millimeters of mercury. It starts there, it increases to 30 after a minute, and after 15 minutes of rest, it's still above 15 minutes of mercury. Non-operative treatment is rarely effective. However, anti-inflammatories and activity modifications should be attempted for at least three months. Operative management of exertional compartment syndrome includes the two-incision fasciotomy. The lateral incision releases the anterior and lateral compartments started 12 to 15 centimeters above the lateral malleolus. The superficial perineal nerve is at risk in the area and needs to be protected. 40% of patients will have a fascial hernia in the area of the superficial perineal nerve. The medial incision is used to release the posterior compartments. The biggest complication of this procedure is recurrence of symptoms. The highest success rate are those that are suffering from a symptomatic anterior compartment. Let's turn our attention now to the back of the knee in popliteal artery entrapment syndrome. The popliteal artery arises from the femoral artery after passing through the adductor hiatus. It transitions through the popliteal fossa, giving off superior and inferior medial and lateral geniculate arteries as well as the middle geniculate artery. What does the middle geniculate artery supply blood to? The anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments. 
Distally, the popliteal artery gives off the anterior tibial artery and then finally divides into the posterior tibial artery and the perineal or fibular artery. So what causes popliteal artery entrapment syndrome? It is caused by a constriction of the popliteal artery, either by an aberrant muscle, generally thought to be the medial head of the gastroc or popliteus muscle, a tendon, or an anomalous fibrous band. Frequently, it occurs in males at a 4 to 1 ratio and in the ages of 25 to 40 years of age. The entrapment leads to a decreased blood flow distal to the popliteal fossa with symptoms presenting similar to a compartment syndrome. With the correct diagnosis and surgical intervention, upwards of 70 to 100% patients have a full resolution of their symptoms. So how do these patients present? Patients will present with pain, swelling, cramping, and paresthesias. They may have changes in distal pulses with either active plantar flexion or passive dorsiflexion, which you can imagine as the medial gastroc fires, it causes constriction of the artery. This may be difficult to differentiate from an exertional compartment syndrome. Radiographs are typically normal, and angiogram is 100% sensitive and will show stenosis or obliteration of the popliteal artery. There may also be post-stenotic dilatation. Non-operative management includes activity modification and observation. It is typically successful in patients with very mild symptoms that occur only with rigorous exercise. Operative management includes resection or release of the constricting vessels and possibly a saphenous vascular bypass. Complications of popliteal artery entrapment syndrome include arterial thrombosis and deep venous thrombosis. Now let's turn our attention to the most common diagnosis for lower leg pain, tibial stress syndrome, also known as shin splints. Tibial stress syndrome is incredibly common. It makes up to 10 to 15% of running injuries and 60% of pain syndromes in the leg. It is caused by attraction periostitis. Medial tibial stress syndrome, which is the most common, is caused by attraction periostitis of the tibialis posterior and soleus. Anterolateral tibial stress syndrome is caused by attraction periostitis of the tibialis anterior on the tibia and interosseous membrane. Risk factors for tibial stress syndrome include running without enough shock absorption, a sudden increase in the intensity of the training, overtraining, and hill running. Females diagnosed with athlete triad syndrome are at particularly high risk for progressing from tibial stress syndrome to a stress fracture. Remember that the female athlete triad is amenorrhea, disordered eating, and osteoporosis. Patients with tibial stress syndrome typically present with diffuse pain along the medial distal tibia that decreases with running. It is important to differentiate this from exertional compartment syndrome where the pain increases over time. Physical exam will show tenderness along the posterior medial border of the tibia. These patients may also have a pes planus deformity and tight Achilles tendon. Radiographs are obtained to rule out a stress fracture. These are generally normal. Long term, the patient may develop a periosteal exostosis. A three-phase bone scan may show diffuse longitudinal increased uptake along the posterior medial border of the tibia. The bone scan is also helpful in ruling out a stress fracture. MRI of the tibia may show increased periosteal edema. Non-operative management for tibial stress syndrome includes activity modification. Patients should decrease the running distance, avoid hill running, attempt running on synthetic track work material, and engage in cross-training. Operative management includes a deep posterior compartment fasciotomy and release of the periosteum. I would not pick this as an answer on your board exam. Patients would need to fail an extremely extensive course of non-operative management prior to undergoing surgery. Let's now talk about some of the stress fractures we encounter with overuse injury. 
We'll first talk about femoral neck stress fractures. This is a fracture of the femoral neck secondary to repetitive loading. There are two types of femoral neck stress fractures. There's the compression side, which involves the inferior and medial neck, and the tension side, which involves the superior and lateral neck. Femoral neck stress fractures commonly occur in runners with the repetitive loading causing microscopic fractures. The continual repetitive loading does not allow for appropriate healing time, and therefore the crack propagates across the neck. This is seen frequently in the female athlete triad. Again, remember this is defined as amenorrhea, disordered eating, and osteoporosis. So what is the blood supply for the femoral neck? The medial and lateral femoral circumflex arteries. Again, the compression side of the femoral neck is the inferior medial neck with weight bearing. So again, our management of femoral neck stress fractures depends on whether the stress fracture has occurred on the tension or compression side of the femoral neck. Why does this matter and how do tension and compression relate to bone healing and bone remodeling? Well, let's think back to the basic science lecture with Wolf's Law. This is the idea that bone remodels in response to mechanical stress. Increasing mechanical stress increases bone formation. Decreased mechanical stress increases bone loss, which is reversible. The clinical application of this is seen in osteopenia in a patient that has been non-weight bearing for a prolonged period of time. Increased bone density in areas exposed to high stress, such as the calcar of the femur, demonstrate this pretty clearly. So that makes it easy to remember which side is the compression side, the calcar of the femur, and which side is the tension side, the superior lateral side of the femur. Now how is a patient with a femoral neck stress fracture going to present? Patients will typically present with a history pointing to an overuse injury. They may have recently increased their training. They will have a gradual onset of pain, worse with activity, that improves with rest, and is localized either to the anterior thigh or groin. Physical examination may be benign. Plain radiographs may be negative, and a high clinical suspicion should cause you to order advanced imaging. An MRI is very sensitive and specific for the diagnosis. Now, how do we treat femoral neck stress fractures? Treatment is required for many of these fractures. A patient can be treated non-operatively if they have a compression-sided fracture that extends less than 50% across the neck. They require percutaneous screw fixation with any tension-sided fracture or a compression-sided fracture that extends greater than 50% across the neck. All right, let's move a little distal now to a femoral shaft stress fracture. This is an overuse injury caused by abnormal stress common in young athletic individuals. Recently, femoral shaft insufficiency fractures have been associated with long-term bisphosphonate use in elderly patients. Insufficiency fractures may also be associated with osteopenia. Stress fracture in a normal bone is known as a fatigue fracture. Stress fracture in abnormal bone is known as an insufficiency fracture. Patients with a femoral shaft stress fracture will have a history of overuse, a gradual onset of pain, which is worse with activity, and improves with rest. Patients may have tenderness over the femur. The three-point fulcrum test may reproduce the symptoms. To perform this, place your arm under the patient's thigh and apply downward pressure for, with your other hand on the knee. This places a bending stress across the femur and may cause pain in someone with a stress fracture. Radiographs are typically normal, however there is a chance they may show cortical lucencies or periosteal reaction. Some patients may show cortical thickening on radiographic examination. CT scans may show cortical lucency as well. MRI is the most sensitive imaging modality for detecting stress fractures. It will show high signal in the area of the fracture on T2 and a linear area of low signal on T1. Most patients can be treated with protected weight-bearing, rest, and activity modification. Weight-bearing should be restricted until the patient is pain-free. 
Osteoporotic patients, patients older than 60, or those that have fractured and displaced should undergo a locked intramedullary nail. Finally, let's go over tibial stress fractures. Tibial stress fractures are those seen in runners and military recruits, and again, they have an increased training volume that predisposes them. They present as a gradual onset of pain localized to the shin with strenuous activity that improves with rest. This may eventually transition to pain with all activity. Radiographs may show the dreaded black line on the anterior tibial cortex. MRI is the most sensitive test as it will show marrow edema and increased signal on T2. Posterior medial stress fractures tend to hear better than the anterior cortex because the anterior is on the tension side of the bone and has less blood flow. Most patients may be treated with protective weight bearing for four to six weeks while avoiding anti-inflammatories. Bone stimulators can also be a useful adjuvant. If the patient has not healed within six months, they may require a reamed intermedullary nailing. Because of the decreased rate of healing from anterior cortical stress fractures, some surgeons recommend prophylactic fixation earlier. And lastly, one more stress fracture to mention that was recently on the orthopedic and training examination. Rib stress fractures. This is an overuse injury secondary to a repetitive pulling of muscle attached to the periosteum of ribs. This is frequently seen in rowers, and I have only seen this in rowers. Risk factors again include the female athletic triad. Very rarely patients may complain of a snapping sensation. However, more commonly it is an insidious onset of pain localized to the ribs that is worse with deep breathing or coughing. Patients will be tender to palpation directly over that rib. Radiographs of the chest are typically negative and a bone scan can be performed if clinical suspicion remains. However, this is not necessary for the diagnosis. Patients with a rib stress fracture are treated non-operatively with rest and sensation of activity until the patient becomes pain-free. The stress fracture may take a full three to six weeks to heal. However, most patients feel better fairly rapidly. All right, that concludes our talk on lower extremity exertional compartment syndrome and stress fractures. As always, please check back frequently for lecture updates and additions. Thanks for listening.